I'm delighted to be here uh, today and have the opportunity to share a little bit with you of what the Lord has put on my heart with this scripture that he impressed upon me a few weeks ago when I realized I was going to be preaching this scripture from the book of Romans. And as I thought about it, and as I pondered and weighed it in my heart and my mind, uh, uh, a story began to emerge. And in fact, that's what I'd like us to talk about today, are some stories and hear about some stories. And what I've learned is that all of us like stories. One of my favorite stories is called Rigoletto. Uh, Rigoletto is actually a movie put out by Feature Films for Families a number of years ago now. We've been watching it with my 7th and 8th grade choirs at Valley City High School, and I love the story. It's a story of redemption. It's a story of betrayal. It's a story of misunderstanding. But, but before all of that and in all of that, it's, it's a story about nobility and honor and what happens when a community realizes it was wrong about so many things and then embraces truth. It's a beautiful story. We love stories. Think about one that you like. And I hope it's not Die Hard. So, but there you go. <laughs> right. So anyway, but we all love stories. Think about your favorite book. I love The Lord of the Rings. I love The Chronicles of Narnia. How many of you have read The Chronicles of Narnia? <laughs> oh, look at this. That's awesome. Probably seen the movies too, although in my opinion, the movies don't do the books justice. But that's just me. So, could we, this morning, for the sake of this sermon and these verses, which we're going to read in just a few minutes, could we think in terms of our lives being a story? Now, typically, when an author begins to pen a story, he doesn't just sit down and write. He's, he's given it some thought. There are main characters. There is a plot. Uh, there typically is some tension that occurs, some adversity, and then finally the resolution of the plot. And many times, though not always, we live happily ever after. And that's what we love about stories. And perhaps in your life's story, Perhaps you're the type of person that has thought about your life's plot, and maybe early in life you made plans. I'm going to go to college or trade school, and I want to do this, and I want to get married, uh, and I want to have a family, a home, and a house, and I want my life to look like this and do these things, and maybe, maybe you've accomplished that. But maybe your life hasn't turned out anything like it, it was going to, and you're at this place like, I'm trying to figure it all out. Regardless of your age, regardless of your intentions, you have a story. I have a story. We're going to look at four stories this morning. So what is your story? You see, we tend to think of our lives as our own. It's my story, right? I mean, I think of myself. I was born to missionaries. Um, my parents moved many times when I was young, but I always managed to find them. Thank you for being awake. Uh, so we, I grew up in Argentina, and then we moved back to the United States when I was 13. Uh, I knew from an early age that God had gifted me with music. I loved worship as a teenager. I led the youth group. I kind of did that my whole life. I thought that's what I would do out of college, but as it turned out, I ended up in public teaching, music education, for about 15 years before that turn where I 
was in ministry for full time for 20 years, and now, guess what? God trained me in both, and I'm doing both. I worship with you guys every week, and I teach the choral students at Valley City High School. So my, my life story, my trajectory has followed a path that, honestly, I, I, it, it's not surprising to me, but there's a reason for that. I've had struggles. Even for me, for those of us who profess Christ as Savior, realizing that our life's story matters only as it's intertwined with Christ's story can prove to be a long and difficult journey. Now, did you catch what I just said? It was hugely important. And that is for those who have professed Jesus Christ as Savior. In other words, you have accepted him as your Lord, have undergone a new birth. For us, our lives' stories are not our own, but they are wrapped up in his. And it's, it's a tough journey, but it's one that God is committed to teaching us. Today, if you'll permit me, I would like to look at the lives of four individuals who understood their roles in Christ's story. Because at the end of our time this morning, that, that's going to be the takeaway, right? Do you understand your role in Christ's story? And you understand that while, yes, you have a story, you also are a character on the stage that is Christ's story. And when you think of your story that way as being wrapped up in his, well, now you're beginning to think as a kingdom citizen. So let's look at these individuals. The first one, the Apostle Paul, formerly Saul of Tarsus, the author of the book of Romans, who experienced a radical life transformation when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. His early life isn't so well known. He probably was from a devout Jewish family from the city of Tarsus, which was one of the larger trade centers on the Mediterranean coast. While he was still fairly young, he was either sent or moved with his family to Jerusalem, uh, where he studied with a very well-known teacher, probably the foremost Jewish teacher of the day, Gamaliel. So he was on this trajectory even when he was a young man, we, we see recorded in the book of Acts where you might remember Stephen was stoned because of his faith in Christ and he delivered a sermon and he really called out the Pharisees and the Sadducees and scripture says they were cut to the quick and they took him outside of the city. They stoned him and remember that standing there watching was a young man named Saul who was actually holding the robes of the people who were stoning Stephen. So Paul had been on a trajectory, but this trajectory was radically interrupted after a confrontation with Jesus left him temporarily blind. And then he spent 13 years of his life rethinking his story while making tents. Did you know that? That he was, you knew, probably knew the blind part from the encounter on the road to Damascus, but did you know that for 13 years he just, he just made tents? That, that's all he did because... God reoriented his life. Had to. 
So he spent these 13 years rethinking his life story, but he didn't stay there. And by the end of his life story, he wrote things like, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I like this one. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Those words to me cry out to us, understand that it's Christ's story of which we're a part. Of course, Paul became a great champion for the gospel. He wrote 13 of the books in the New Testament is regarded as the father of Christian theology and philosophy, and he understood his role in Christ's story. So, what took place in Paul's heart and mind that brought him to a proper understanding of his own life story in relation to Christ? And now we're going to look there. If you'd open to the book of Romans, and you perhaps already have, We'll go there for an answer. So the primary theme running through Paul's letter to the Romans is the revelation of God's righteousness and in his plan for salvation. We're going to talk about it in a couple of minutes. What the Bible calls the gospel. And this brings our scripture to us this morning. And he writes in Romans 1, verse 16 and 17, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Now, any time you start reading a paragraph that starts with therefore, or for, as in the case here, you know that something has has already been said that, that probably is relevant, probably important. And in fact, that's true here. So, so if you can, if you're able, you have to really pay attention to do this, follow through verses 1 through, ah, let's say verse 7. Okay, so now, now get this. So, so this is Paul's introduction in this letter that he wrote the Roman church. Catch this. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God, in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow! I don't know about you, but my emails typically start with, hey, (laughs) right? I mean, this is like, what on earth did this guy just say? But you have to understand, his heart is full. He just spent 13 years studying, redefining his life. He's been traveling around, winning people to the Lord, sharing the gospel, telling them about his encounter with this Jesus who met him on the road to Damascus, proclaiming Jesus' lordship. And he's, and he's talking about this life change. And in the context of this, he says, 
the, the guy that you might have known me to be. I, I'm not him. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, you might be asking, well, okay, Mark, how on earth did you get like the title, Jesus Christ, is he part of your story, or are you part of his, out of those verses? To do that, you're going to have to, for the next 10 minutes, explore with me and wrestle with me through some of the questions I asked when the Lord took me to that passage, from which this whole kind of theme developed. So can we do that? Question one, Paul talks about the gospel. Why is Paul not ashamed of the gospel? Well, first of all, his position on the gospel is evident in that passage we just read to the church in Rome, the excitement. For him, Christ is the person in whom dwells the fullness of the Godhead. The Alpha, the Omega, the eternal word made flesh. For him, the message of the gospel is the most important thing in life. For the Apostle Paul, the message of the gospel was the most important thing in life. Now we're going to unpack that message. So I'm not going to leave you hanging here. Let's look at question number two. Well, how is the gospel the power of God for salvation? Well, salvation from our sinful fallen state comes only one way, and that's through belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, who received upon himself the just punishment for every human being, and that's you and me and everyone in this room, everyone in Jamestown, everyone in North Dakota, yes, even Mr. Trump and Mr. Pence. Amen? Oh boy, I shouldn't have gone there. Okay, so let's keep going. Every human being since the fall of Adam and Eve, all of us are who, who are under the wrath of God because of our sinful nature. Okay, so here's where we need to admit something, guys. Um, and I was sharing with First Service that I, I have had now the benefit over several decades to, to walk in a kind of a public arena in the sense that I, I spent most of my life immersed with students and then immersed in the church and now with both. And so for 30 plus years, I've watched a cultural mindset evolve and develop. Frankly, I saw it coming 30 years ago, but we're living in the midst of it now, and this is it. I don't know if you've realized it. People don't like to be told that they have a sinful nature and that there's nothing good within them. Have you, have you experienced that? But people don't like to hear that. That is not a popular message. When you begin to share the message of the gospel, and, and, you, and, and, and we're forced to contend that we have a holy God who's perfect in all of his ways, and there's nothing we can do to measure up to that, that, that is a message most people don't want to receive because they'll tell you, I'm, I'm basically a good person. How dare you? Who do you think you are to tell me who I am? You don't even know me. But see, it takes a work of the Holy Spirit to reveal to our hearts just how far we've come and how far we've fallen. And so we don't shy away. We don't give up. Instead, we speak truth. 
hopefully coming to the point, which I know most of you have, to where we believe. So question number three, what does it mean to be one who believes? Well, believers are those who have embraced the truth of who Jesus is and have subjected themselves accordingly to his authority. Remember, we're trying to understand how our lives are wrapped up into his story. It's his truth. It's his authority. It's his life. Next question, what does Paul mean when he says in these verses, to the Jew first and also to the Greek? And why is it important? And folks, that statement is important. See, God's covenant with Abraham, way back in the Old Testament, is the basis of his covenant with all mankind. And it is through Abraham's offspring that Christ descended, being born of a virgin, through Eve's lineage. Such was Abraham's faith when God promised his descendants would outnumber the stars, that it was accorded to him by God as righteousness. Abraham believed God. And he walked accordingly. He was obedient when God said, Abraham, do this. Abraham, okay, I'll do this. God said, well, go here. Oh, okay. Abraham, sacrifice your son. Oh, okay. He he was obedient because he believed God. So it was accorded to him as righteousness. Well, Pastor Mark, what is that? What, What is I see this word a lot. What is righteousness? What is the righteousness of God? Well, simply, God's righteousness is the preeminent state of his nature, who he is, the source of justice, truth, beauty, pleasure, all of that which ultimately is good. That is wrapped up in his nature, his righteousness. What does it mean that the righteousness of God is revealed, as it says here in these verses, from faith to faith? Faith to faith. What is that? That doesn't make sense. I'm not, I don't get that. What does that mean? Well, faith, as we've said, is the only means through which one may enter into a relationship with God. Oh my, I'm going to read that again because that's important. Faith is the only means through which one may enter into a relationship with God. That, that means that one could theoretically read their Bible and memorize it, but not necessarily believe it. You might be really educated and know it really well, but you don't believe it because it's, it's just knowledge. There's nothing in here that's grabbed your heart and, and pulled you into it. Or you could go to church your whole life and even teach Sunday school or play in the worship team or serve or do something, but not believe and outside of this arena of activity, your steps, really, it's, it's your own life doing your own thing. I'm, I'm just, yeah, I, I got my course. It's, it's kind of set. God, oh yeah, well, he's there, but I got my own thing. That's not a life of faith. Faith is the only means through which one may enter into a relationship with God. Faith begins with God, leads to greater faith both in others and in ourselves. That's what faith to faith means. And then Paul chooses to use a quote from Habakkuk, because the righteous man, the just man, shall live by faith. And he uses this well-known reference to the Jews to underscore the importance of how faith is the only way, as we've said, to the Father, and ultimately to salvation. So now here comes a touchy question. 
And you might get this sometime if, if you ever are engaging with someone who seriously is trying to come to believe and understand the gospel. How is it that righteousness only comes from outside oneself? Why is it that Mark Reeves has no righteousness of his own? Mark, I always thought you were kind of a good guy. Now I'm hearing that you're crummy. Well, yeah. Okay, it's because that we, being descendants of Adam, remember Adam back in the garden, Adam and Eve, remember what happened? Eve took the apple after God, apple, I just said apple. She took the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It probably was not an apple, so there you go. But, but that's how culture portrays it, right? That's like this apple thing. I'd much rather be a pear. I like pears much better than apples. Anyway... Whatever it was, she took it and she ate it. And they disobeyed God. And as a result of their disobedience, they died spiritually. And all of their descendants, of whom we're a part, included in that number, we live in spiritual death. Something that's dead cannot produce life or that which is living. It's dead. Therefore, our only hope is to have somehow have life imbued into us from an outside source. And guys, the only outside source that can imbue life into us is our Creator. Why do the righteous live by faith? And I'll say it again. Faith is the only entry point to a relationship with God. So let's look at some of these other stories, right? These are men and women, well, one woman, who I have admired throughout the years. Uh, The first is... In fact, a character in my all-time favorite movie, Chariots of Fire. Anyone ever seen Chariots of Fire? Oh, four of you. Good. See, we're in a small, but we're we're cool. Okay, I love Chariots of Fire. Now, it's a movie that it, it's not Die Hard, right? It, it's it's not it, it's not like it's not like anything. You, you, it's cerebral. You have to watch. You have to listen. You have to pay attention. But it's one of those movies that every time I watch it, even though I've probably seen it a hundred times, it's like, oh, I didn't see that before. One of the characters in, the, in this movie is Eric Little, who also understood his role in Christ's story, which means, yes, he was a devout believer. So Eric was born in China in 1902, 118 years ago, to Scottish missionaries. At the age of five, now get this, because we're, we're so protective of our little ones, right? At five, he and his brother Robert, who was eight, his parents sent them to England to go to school. That's like, see ya. How do you even do that? That's almost inconceivable for us today. And then they went through grade school, um, what we would consider high school for them. And as he was coming up, Eric found that he was a gifted athlete. At the University of Edinburgh, he earned international fame as a rugby player, earned the moniker the Flying Scotsman for his speed and athletic prowess. And yet, for all of his ability, Eric never lost sight of his role in Christ's story. An opportunity arose for him to compete in the Olympics. His sister, who was kind of a partner with him, and they were headed back to China, she got upset because she's like, how can you even consider this? You're like playing rugby and you're running and doing, you don't even have time for God anymore. You don't have time for anything to do. And she was distraught. And he kind of went on a walk with her, at least in the movie he did. I'm not sure exactly how it happened. But at some point, he took her aside and said, look, 
I, I get it, and I understand why you're upset, but you need to understand this. God made me for a purpose, and yes, that purpose is China. And he said, and I love this, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And yet his faith was tested when he was scheduled on a Sunday to run the heat for a 100-meter race, which was his strongest event. See, he refused in all of his sports career ever to be engaged in any kind of game or event that took place on Sunday because for him, Sunday was the Sabbath. It was the Lord's Day, a day of rest, and he was commanded to keep it holy. And sure enough, he gets to the Olympics and, oh, by the way, did you hear your heat for the 100-meter run is on Sunday? He's like, whoa, 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 what, what? Well, yeah, it's on Sunday. It's not just a heat. It's not a race. He said, no, it's a big deal. I I can't do that. And, of course, the British Olympic Committee was like, what? You're here representing your country. You're not going to run because of a heat on a Sunday? And he's like, no. Well, fortunately... Uh, a teammate swapped with him, and he ended up running the 400 later in the week and blew everybody away. In fact, they, they didn't expect him to because the 100 meter, if you know meters, I mean, 400 meters is four times as long as 100 meters. I'm a mathematician, too. You didn't know that, did you? So the, think about this. So he'd never run the 400, and he ran it and left everybody in the dust. Eric was quoted to have said, Victory over all the circumstances of life comes not by might, nor by power, but by a practical confidence in God and by allowing his spirit to dwell in our hearts and control our actions and emotions. Learn in the days of ease and comfort to think in terms of the prayer that follows so that when the days of hardship come, you will be fully prepared and equipped to meet them. Eric understood his role in Christ's story. Do we? Hudson Taylor also understood his role in Christ's story. Considered to be one of the greatest missionaries in modern church history, he evangelized most of China. Think about this. At the end of the 19th century, started a missions organization known today, still around, OMF International. During his day, he brought over 800 missionaries to the country. One guy, one guy did this. Brought 800 people in. Started 125 schools. He faced overwhelming struggles and financial hardships. Ministered during wars and uprisings. Received terrible reception many times from Chinese nationals because he's an American had property stolen and destroyed numerous times, experienced the death of his wife and some of his children. Historian Ruth Tucker summarizes the theme of his life. No other missionary in the 19th century since the Apostle Paul has had a wider vision and has carried out a more systematized plan of evangelizing a broad geographical area, that would be China, than Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor himself summarizes his own life with these words. And if you, if you would allow me, could we allow this to be his challenge to us today, over 100 years later? Let us give up our work, 
our thoughts, our plans, ourselves, our lives, our loved ones, our influence, our all right into his hand. And then when we've given all over to him, there'll be nothing left for us to be troubled about or make trouble for others about, right? Because that's what happens when we're so wrapped up in our own story. We're typically fraught with anxiety or depression or uncertainty. But when we understand that, hey, my story is wrapped up in Christ's, I'm not, there's no fear because we live by faith. Finally, Corey Ten Boom. She understood her role in Christ's story. Born to Danish watchmakers, her family saved many Jews from the Nazi invasion in Amsterdam during World War II. They were eventually arrested, tried, sentenced to concentration camps where many of them died. Corey miraculously escaped. I should say that correctly. She did not escape the concentration camp. She, she was due to be terminated, and through a clerical error, she was shifted somewhere else. So when they wiped out her, all of her people her age, she, she had been moved by a sovereign act of the hand of God. So she escaped that fate of being killed in the concentration camp. You can read more about her life in The Hiding Place, which is her biography and chronicles her story which she herself summarizes in these words. Faith sees the invisible, believes the unbelievable, and receives the impossible. Corey understood her role in Christ's story. How can we come to understand our role in Christ's story? I like to submit these three things. These are not all inclusive. They're just something that I would suggest to you. There are probably more. You probably, can probably come up with more if you think about it. But I'll give these to you. First, we must desire to understand our role in Christ's story. But we have a problem. Our sin separates us from God and drives us to write and live out our own story, placing us under God's judgment. So, we must confess our tendency to sin and ask for forgiveness. First John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Secondly, we must then decide to assume our role in Christ's story. When we are reconciled to God and embrace his story, he folds our lives into the life of his Son in all things. Are made new. 2 Corinthians 5 16 to 17 says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. In other words, I'm not going to look through life according to my story. Even though once we did that, even we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we see him no longer. We regard his story differently. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We embrace his story, our part in his story. Finally, we must deny our tendency to lean on our own ability and instead put our trust and faith in the plans God has for us. 
In three of the Gospels, Jesus told his disciples, this recorded three times, if anyone will follow me, you must deny yourself and take up your cross. That means, if I could paraphrase that, according to this sermon, it means you've got to quit looking at your story as being the most preeminent. Let that thing go and embrace my story. And, and do whatever you have to do to let it go. Faith is the dynamic force through which we transition from our own story back into God's. So, so, so how do we do this? How do we embrace Christ's story? Faith provides the power, motivation, and vision to live as kingdom citizens. Remember Abraham. Remember Paul. Remember Eric Little. Remember Hudson Taylor. Corey Ten Boom. In Romans 10, Paul writes, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The prophet Jeremiah writes, and this is from the Lord, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. And of course, a number of us are probably familiar with that well-known passage in Hebrews which defines faith. Hebrews 11, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their condemnation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made of things that are visible. And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And I feel like I have to throw this in there. If we're honest with ourselves, we'll admit that it's not what we say that we believe, but it's how we live. How we live is the marker of our faith in what we believe. I'll leave you with these thoughts. Do you understand your role in Christ's story? Or do you think of Christ's story as just an addendum to yours? Is your deepest desire to really know the Father? Or, or, or do you just give him some kind of mental acknowledgement, kind of like our internet provider, I mean, right? Or our, our, or our telephone provider, Verizon or whoever you have. Well, we know they're out there. We pay them every month. And without them, this device wouldn't work, and neither would my phone, and I'd be cut off from all communication. So I pay them every month, and they're out there. But I don't, unless I have to call service, you know, the service, customer service, I don't have a relationship with Verizon. I just give them my money. And I hope that when I call customer service, I don't have to be on hold for 20 minutes, right? But that they'll get right to me because I get irritated if I have to wait. Is that your relationship with God? Seriously. I hope not. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? The team's going to come. 
For our closing prayer this morning, I'm going to read some verses out of the book of Isaiah. Please listen to this entreaty from our Creator. For the sake of my servant Jacob and and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none other besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him? A pot among earthen pots? Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, Ask of me things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God. Who formed the earth and made it, He established it. He did not create it empty, He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, Seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Would you stand with me and worship?